the following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, November 27th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, For those of you that are guests with us, my name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege this morning of leading us in our time in God's Word. And so if you've got your Bible with you, or you want to use one of the Bibles right in front of you, I want you to grab it, open it up to the New Testament Gospel of John. So if you go to the middle of your Bible, just open it right up, you don't know where it is, begin to head right. Slow down when you get to Matthew, then Mark, then Luke. The next thing you'll come to is the Gospel according to John. So go to John's Gospel and then look for the big number three. If you're unfamiliar with how the Bible kind of works, those big numbers are chapters, the little numbers are verses. We're going to be in John chapter three this morning and we'll get more specific in just a minute. But let me just remind you as we did last week that today marks the beginning of what the church season, the church calendar would call the Advent season. I don't know if you grew up with Advent traditions in your home, if, you, if that was part of life for you. Um, I grew up with the little calendars that you'd open up a little door and there's a piece of chocolate behind it and counted down the days of Advent leading to Christmas. And recently, I think it was my wife was in a store and she was telling me that they have really evolved beyond chocolate now. You can get like beer Advent calendars, wine Advent calendars, cigar Advent calendars. I mean, the world has taken over Advent, but it's not really about chocolate or wine, or cigars. That's not really what Advent is. Um, Advent is a season in the life of the church, in the calendar of the church, that helps us mark time by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Advent is just part of the way the church marks the year. It marks time in the story of the gospel. Uh, last year, we spent some time, in, or earlier this year, really, in, in the first three chapters of Genesis. If you were with us, you might remember, we talked about how God ordered and established time and, and the beginnings and how he set things in order. But as the story goes with his people, you'll find that a time came when God gave his people a series of festivals and feasts that they were to celebrate. And each one was remembering or honoring and pointing their hearts towards something different about who he was and how he continued to be for them. Something of his character towards them and their need and continual dependence upon him. And those feasts and those, those, those celebrations, festivals, they marked the year. They ordered the year of God's people. And they kind of were the way that time, a year, was marked in the life of Israel. It wasn't probably 200 years, almost 300 years after the resurrection of Jesus that the early church began to think, how do we mark our year? How do we mark time? And it was no longer going to be according to the festivals and the feasts of God's people Israel in the Old Testament. They began to mark and order the calendar year, the time of the church around the story of the gospel around the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And the beginning of the church calendar year, as it was established, is actually today. It's the season of Advent. Advent is a season, it will last for this and the next three Sundays, in the life of the church, that on one hand looks back to the longing, the desire, 
the preparation, the anticipation for the coming of the promised Messiah. All that God's people and all that God had spoke about to them through the prophets, all the longing and the anticipation for the fulfillment of the Messiah to come, all of that finally coming to pass in the birth of the Son of God. Advent looks to that time and that preparation and now in our hearts and lives directs us towards the longing, the anticipation, and the preparation of the return of God's Son. It's a season marked by that kind of anticipation, that kind of longing. It's to have the longing of God's promised return woven deeper into our hearts the way that it was woven into the hearts of his people longing for the Messiah to come. And Advent is that season, those four weeks that lead up to Christmas morning, which really is just the start of the next marker of time, the next season in the life of the church, which is the Christmas season that lasts 12 days. That's where it comes from. And it's a time in which the church remembers and celebrates the fulfillment of the promise, the coming of the Messiah, the promises of God, yes and amen, in his son, Jesus. The promise has arrived The promise is being fulfilled. And with the coming of his son comes the embodiment of what we often talk about during the Advent season, the embodiment of real hope, real joy, real peace, and real love. Those are the realities that we're going to consider over the next four weeks during the Advent season. And it really couldn't be more timely for us as a people because We live and move and have our being in a world that is chocked full of counterfeits. Counterfeit love, counterfeit hope, counterfeit joy, counterfeit peace. All promises and things held out to us by a world that can never actually deliver. They're not real. They're not lasting. They're counterfeit. But their effect upon our hearts and lives are very real nonetheless. I was introduced to a poem by Pastor Ray Ortland in his book on the gospel. It looks just like this. And if you're a guest with us here this morning or you're someone here that's just considering what Christianity is all about, I, I can't commend this book more highly. We want to put a copy of it in your hands if you don't already have it. But in this book, he, he quotes a poem from the great poet W.H. Auden. The poem was entitled September 1st, 1939. And this is what Auden said, capturing really what I would say is the reality of a heart and a life lived in a world of counterfeits. Auden said, I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street. So you're picturing a dive bar in New York City, 1939 on 52nd Street. I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid. As the clever hopes expire on a low and dishonest decade, faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. Lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. Artists have a way of capturing something of reality in verse that 
it's hard for the rest of us to be able to do. All it encaptured our hearts in a world of counterfeits in just a few lines. Keep the lights off and the music loud. Let me remain distracted by the reality of my own heart for just a minute longer. I don't want to face the fact that I'm lost in all the ways that I have tried to find hope and peace and joy and love. It hasn't worked. I've never really been happy or good. He's captured the reality of living in a world full of counterfeits. And it's into that world of counterfeits that real love enters. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. John writes this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in here. Father, Thank you for the privilege this morning of being able to open up this Bible and to hear from you. So we ask this morning that your Holy Spirit will work through your word to help us to see more clearly your love in the person of your son. We ask that you would do this for our joy and his glory. Amen. You know, if you've seen the documentaries, Maybe you've read some articles along the way. Maybe you've heard one of us talk about it as an illustration to a sermon. But being able to differentiate between a counterfeit and the real thing is what makes all the difference in the pricelessness of an object, right? The ability to distinguish between that which is fake and that which is real makes all the difference. And in every way, in all the industries in which this has to happen, from counterfeit money to counterfeit jewelry to counterfeit bags to all the things that are faked in this world, they will tell you industry to industry, the primary way to become adept and skilled at distinguishing between a counterfeit and the real thing is by becoming a master in the real thing. Counterfeits will always change. They'll always adjust. The way in which one becomes more skilled and more adept in distinguishing between that which is fake and that which is real is by becoming a master in the real thing, right? And so this morning, that's the very thing I want to focus our attentions on, right? I want us this morning in God's kindness to sharpen our eyes and to sharpen our hearts to be able to see more clearly the real thing, real love, to become a, a greater expert on that which is real, on reality. And so we're not going to spend time looking at the counterfeits, looking at all, all, the, all the fakes. I want us to spend time focusing on the real thing. John 3.16 
as familiar as it is probably to everyone in here, is one of the clearest illustrations and demonstrations and explanations of the real thing that you and I will come across in God's word. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're just going to consider what John says here and take it piece by piece. If you look at it, you'll see that even in our English translation, it's made up of three primary movements, three primary phases. And we're just going to look at it movement to movement, phase to phase, and, and at times even look at the words within each movement, within each phase, with an eye towards having our hearts sharpened at being able to distinguish between that which is real and that which is counterfeit. The first phrase that we're given in probably the most underestimated statement in the Bible is this, for God so loved the world. Fully understood, it has to be one of the most exciting statements imaginable. Yet because it's up on a poster card and every football game and baseball game and every mug and and t-shirt and every store and you've seen it your entire life, it's one of the most underestimated statements in the Bible. And it's actually made up of, of three very significant parts itself. The first one is God himself. For God. Now, if you've been with us any period of time, you've probably heard one of us at least quote A.W. Tozer when he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is probably the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people collectively or no person has ever risen above its religion. And no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. John 3.16 is so assumed and and so underestimated that when you and I who have grown up in in a world that has at least had some inkling of Christianity sprinkled throughout it, we assume we know who John is talking about here. But Tozer reminds us that apart from God graciously revealing to us who he is as he reveals himself to us in his word, none of us would ever even have a thought about God that came anywhere close to doing him justice. So we can't just read this and assume we have an idea of who John is talking about. We have to understand the one who has revealed himself already to us. For this verse to finally rest on our hearts with all of the weight and joy that it has, you need to be clear about who John is talking about right here. This God is the God who has revealed himself to us already as the one only true God, sovereign creator of heavens and earth, the creator of all things, all holy, all pure, all just, all righteous, the one who looked at his people in Genesis 17 and said, I am God Almighty. I am the almighty one. The one in whom your minds will bump up into limits even trying to conceive. This is who I am. And John said, this God, the one true, sovereign, pure, almighty one, so loved. Now if you go home and type this verse into your computer into one of the free Bible programs that are out there that give you all the different translations, 
you can actually choose to see it in the original Greek. And then they'll give you the translation of that, so you don't have to read it, it'll give it to you. And what you'll notice when you go and type this verse in is that the very first word in John 3.16 is so. The way that the Greek sentence works is that it, it, the words were ordered by level of importance. That's how you understood it, and the grammar would help you know where it went in the language. This is the most important word in the sentence. So, it's a word that speaks of intensity. There's an intensity to this that John doesn't want to be missed. There's an intensity to God's love that if we're really honest, you and I tend to water down in our own hearts. We tend to water down in our own thoughts. Right, if we're really captivated by the reality of this love, of this almighty one, we wouldn't be so easily captivated by all of the counterfeits that are out there trying to pull upon our hearts. This verse and what John is going to say is gonna help us understand this love more clearly. The other thing he says in this first little movement is that this God so loved the world. This is the object of the intensity of this love. And if you're like me, if you grew up in the church at all, if you have a, a long familiarity with the church or with this verse, what comes to your mind when you read the world, it tends to be a statement of quantity. For God so loved the world. That's actually not what John has in mind here. This is not a statement of quantity. I think for the majority of my life, this is how I have always understood this verse. It's not a statement of quantity. John is making a statement about the quality of the objects of God's love. You see, John loves to use this phrase talking about the world. He loves to use this language, the world, throughout his gospel. And every time that John talks about the world in this gospel, it's always speaking of a quality or a characteristic. In fact, I'll just, I'll just give you a little bit right here. In John 7, 7, he talks about the world as those who hate Jesus. John 15, he says it's the world that hates the followers of Jesus. John 14, he talks about the world, and he's talking about those who hate the Spirit of God. But you don't have to go through all the different places in the gospel to kind of capture the picture. You just have to stay here. John chapter 3, verse 19, look at what he says. This is the judgment the light has come into the world. And here's the world. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The world loves darkness. Keep the lights off. Keep the music loud. Let it be dark enough and loud enough that maybe I can begin to find more comfort in hiding the reality of my sin over here and the darkest corners and shadows of my heart. Keep the lights off and, and the music loud. Distract me for just a minute longer. I can take that guilt and I can shove it over further into the corners. Keep the lights off. Man, turn that music up. I just need another minute to ignore the pain of my conscience. Pass me another round while you're at it. Maybe I can drown the pain with this one. 
John's talking about you and me. A people who love darkness rather than the light. A people who find a particular comfort in the shadows, a particular comfort in the dark. I mean, let's be honest, who hasn't known what it is to try to find comfort in taking the reality of your transgression, the reality of your sin, the reality of your wrongdoing, and shoving it into some dark, recessed corner of your heart? Who hasn't tried to deal with the guilt that comes, the shame that begins to grow by sticking it further and further away, trying not to let it out, not to be revealed, trying to reveal to everyone else around you something different than the reality of what's going on in the dark parts of your heart? Who hasn't tried to find some level of comfort in the darkness of their heart, silencing the reality of their conscience? It's this world. This is what John is talking about. People like you and me who love darkness, who love shadows, that God so loves. And notice nowhere here does John indicate in any way, shape, form, or fashion that we deserve it. In fact, God has every single right to say, you like darkness? You like the shadows? You like trying to tuck away the reality of your sin, not be honest? You like trying to come up with another way to spin it and describe it? Another way to talk about yourself that makes you sound and seem to yourself and everyone else a lot better than you really are? You like that? You can have it. He had every right to say that. But he didn't. And again, I can't say it better. You gotta get this book. There's actually an entire chapter in this book that is a extended meditation on John 3.16. In it, Ray Ortland said this, if you've ever been in a relationship with someone that was fractured by dishonesty, fractured by lying, not telling the truth, you know how painful it is, right? You ever experienced that? Anybody in here ever know what that feels like? He said, you know how painful it is. He said, the real challenge, though, actually comes when the one who damaged the relationship by lying doesn't own up to it. The real challenge actually comes when the one who damaged the relationship with dishonesty just wants to pass over it, just wants to say that was in the past, just wants to tuck it over into the corners and into the darkness, wants to call it something else. He said, this is where the real challenge comes in because when that happens, what happens in your heart? Your heart begins to grow a little more distant and a little more cold towards that person, right? right? And the problem now isn't the dishonesty. The problem is the denial of the dishonesty. That's what's actually become the problem. And he said, it's the same kind of denial that you and I in the world who love the darkness, who keep wanting to push the reality of our sin and our shame and our guilt and all of it into the corners, it's this denial that seems so insurmountable to us in our relationships. It's this denial that the intense, unfiltered love of God for sinners overcomes. That's what it does. For God so loved the world that... 
that he overcomes this denial. He overcomes this intense love of the darkness. He overcomes this. So loved the world that he gave his only son. Second movement, two phrases. God gave God's only son. The only son is an intense phrase. Again, familiarity with John 3.16, familiarity with the church can often, often leave it just completely underestimated in our hearts. But at face value, what only son means on one hand is that Jesus is utterly irreplaceable. He's the only. There is no other one. Not to be replaced, not to be reproduced. There is only one son. But at the same time, the intent that John has in putting this word only here, the intent in his mind writing this out is that you and I would sense the preciousness of this son, the value of this son, the preciousness of the relationship between the father and the son. In fact, no other gospel writer writes as often about the relationship between the father and the son than John does. One of his most favorite things to talk about. In fact, in, in John 5, 20, he'll say the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Jesus said, and John records it in John 10, 17, for this reason, the father loves me. In John 15, 9, he records Jesus talking about it again. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Again, John 17, 24, Jesus is praying. John records this for us. When Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Why? Why? Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. When John says only son, he intends for you and I to begin to feel the value and the preciousness of the one who has been the eternal object of the Father's love for all of time. The only Son. And God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, so intensely and in an unfiltered way loved the world of sinners who preferred darkness over him that he gave the most precious thing to his heart, his only son. God gave him. Again, if you're going to begin to feel and hear the reality of what John is trying to explain here, you've got to know what it is for God to give his only son. How he gave his only son. It wasn't anything that you and I did. We didn't twist God's arm into this. No, to best understand what it means for God to give his only son, you just need to stay right here in John chapter three. The context that John 3, 16 finds itself in helps explain it. So I'll give you the short run. In John chapter three, we're introduced to a man named Nicodemus. Jesus is having a conversation with him. Nicodemus is a religious ruler of Israel. He's a Pharisee. 
and he's curious about Jesus. He has questions for Jesus. And so under the cover of darkness, so that no one would know that he's actually going to talk to Jesus, Nicodemus meets with Jesus and asks him questions. He asks him questions about who he is, who Jesus is. Asks him questions about what he's teaching, and Jesus is responding to Nicodemus. And in reality, the the climax of John chapter 3 actually happens at the end of this conversation in verses 14 and 15, where Jesus says something to Nicodemus. This is what he says. Jesus told him, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus, being a religious leader, being a Pharisee, rising to the level of power and leadership that he had, we know at least he had the Old Testament memorized, which means when Jesus said this, immediately his mind went to something that is recorded in Numbers chapter 21. Jesus is directly referring to something that happened in the life of Israel. In Numbers chapter 21, you'll find that Israel was wandering in the wilderness on the way to the promised land, and again, grumbling all the way. In Numbers 21 verse 5, it says this, The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Right? They're rebelling against God and Moses leading them. They're they're doubting God's plan of salvation, rescuing them from slavery, taking them to the promised land, and then they're disregarding God's kindness and generosity and his gifts to them and feeding them continuously with loathsome food. Do you know what the loathsome food was? literal bread from heaven that came down every day. But their hearts have grown so darkened that it's loathsome to them. And so in judgment for their ongoing rebellion and and sin, God sends venomous snakes into the camps of Israel. And these venomous snakes are biting people. And these people begin to die. And as this is happening... God's people begin to see their rebellion. They begin to see their grumbling. They begin to see the reality of their sin. And they go to Moses in an act of of repentance, in essence. And they go to Moses and they say, will you please go and intercede on our behalf with God? Like, we see what we're doing. Please go to God. And so Moses does. He goes to God and God instructs Moses to do something. He says, go and fashion a, a bronze serpent, snake. Put it on top of a pole. Lift that pole up. And tell my people, whoever is bitten by the venom of the snake, if they would just look to that snake, they'll be healed. The the literal symbol of death itself, all the way back to the garden, God transformed into a source of life for those who would but look. So Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What does that have to do with God loving sinners so much that he gave his most precious son? How did he give his only son? His only son, the eternal object of his affection, humbled himself and literally took on flesh. Being born of a virgin, a baby, who had to be fed and cleaned, who had to learn to walk, who had to be held and cared for. He gave him. And that son lived the life on this earth that you and I were created to live. A life of perfect joy and delight and obedience in the Father. 
And then that son willingly allowed his body to be nailed to a cross where it was lifted up. And on that cross, the only son of God was made to be sin and he suffered the judgment and the wrath of the Father that you and I deserved for our sin and he did it in our place. That, he told Nicodemus, whoever believes in him would have eternal life. John is just commentating on it in verse 16 when he says whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, Jesus is saying, as I am lifted up, in some sense becoming like that snake, taking upon myself your sin, I am becoming the embodiment of the curse. And in becoming the embodiment of the curse in our place, he takes the curse away from us who would but look to him. Paul will say it this way, for our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He'll say it another way when he says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. One theologian said it more clearly when he said Jesus in the place of the snake is the source of healing, the source of rescue from the poison of sin and the wrath of God. Jesus is the source of eternal life. See, Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus is he's taking him to a place where he's trying to help him see that all of us have been bitten by the curse of sin and are under God's judgment. We're born loving the darkness. That's why John says in verse 18, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. The world was condemned already. We're born loving the darkness. We're born already under the condemnation and judgment of God. But God so loved sinners who preferred darkness that he literally sacrificed his only son in our place for our sins that we may have eternal life. Show me a better love than that. I know we, we love ourselves some us. Show me a better love than this. Right? This isn't an action on God's part that we're meant to create a statue of and commemorate and, and, and talk about and go, well, that was really great. No, this is the reality of a love that each of us is invited to get in on. Which is why Jesus and then John, and he's commentating on it, says that whoever, and that's a word of inclusivity. That's a word of inclusion. Whoever. It's not based on gender, it's not based on race, it's not based on socioeconomic class, it's not based on generation in which you were born. It's whoever, from the most outwardly scandalous to the most outwardly saintly looking, it doesn't matter, whoever believes in him. Now John's really interesting here. John actually creates a word here. It's used multiple times in John the Gospel and some of the other writers will pick up on it, but it's a, it's a word that literally means whoever believes into Jesus. Who, whoever looks up at him, 
who has been lifted up and made a curse in our place for our sin. Whoever looks up to him and believes into him. The best way I've come around to trying to explain this, we, we talked about it a few weeks ago. I was coming back from a trip to Kentucky and I was sitting there waiting for my plane. And on my phone, I had my boarding pass. And my boarding pass had the time I was leaving, the number of the plane that I was supposed to get on, and the place the plane was flying. And everybody around me, we all had the same thing on our boarding passes, right? We all had the same number, the same time, the same place. But it's not until you actually walk down that jetway and you step into that plane and so identify yourself with that plane that wherever it goes, I go. Whatever happens to it, happens to me. It's not until you do that that you can say, that's where you're headed. That's what it is to believe into Jesus. It's not to know good things about him, kind of like you're sitting there looking at the plane going, I know where it's going, I know what time it's leaving, that's good enough, right? You're not gonna get there. You don't stand on it, behind it, near it, you've got to actually believe into that thing. Sit down and buckle yourself up so that you're so identified with it, whatever happens to it, wherever it goes, you go. That's what John is talking about here. It is throwing yourself into Jesus with all hope. Whoever looks upon him, whoever believes into him, the only non-replaceable, non-reproducible son of God himself, Whoever looks upon him hanging there as your substitution and your sacrifice for your sin, whoever looks upon him and believes that he is the one who saves us from the poisonous venom of sin, saves us from the wrath of God that our sin deserves. Whoever looks to him and believes into him will have eternal life will not perish. Those are words of exclusion. Those are the exclusive words in John 3.16. Whoever is inclusive will not perish but have eternal life. Those are the only two options. That's it. Those who refuse to look to Jesus, those who refuse to turn away from themselves, those who simply want to continue making a home in the darkness and in the shadows of their heart, they will perish. They're already condemned. We're born under that condemnation. But we don't have to stay that way. Whoever would look to him will have eternal life. One writer said, John's point here is that God's love has made provision through the life, death, and resurrection of his only son to give those who believe an eternity of unbroken, unimaginably intimate, unfathomably satisfying fellowship with and enjoyment of God himself. And yet, don't ever forget, he said, that this life is not something you have to wait until you die to inherit. It's yours now. From the first moment you entrust yourself to Jesus in faith. And that's not something we're making up. If you keep reading John's gospel, you'll come to John chapter 5, verse 24, where Jesus will say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, 
not will have, not might have, but has, present tense, eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Present possession of eternal life. Present possession of the quality of life that God intended for his creation and has sent his only son and given him over as a sacrifice for you and I to enjoy. Sam Storms would say it this way, as the consummate expression of his love for this fallen, defiant world of sinners, God did not spare his own son. He made the greatest sacrifice imaginable. And then he said this, we see the magnitude of his love. Right? You want to see the magnitude of God's love. You want your, your heart to grow increasingly sharper at identifying reality. You want to grow more adept at distinguishing between the real love of God and all the counterfeits that our world holds out. You want to become less susceptible to falling for these counterfeits and fakes and more deeply de enjoying and grounded in the reality of God's true love for you. This is what he says. We see the magnitude of his love as we see the precious, priceless value of the gift that he gave. You want to see the magnitude of real love. You want to be captivated by real love. You want to become more adept at living in this real love and less easily seduced by all the fakes and counterfeits. Look to the priceless value of the gift given. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For, because, because of God's unfiltered, intense love, you and I can have the fullness of life now and for all of eternity. This is what makes his love so stunning. He gave his only son for people like you and me who have fallen so deeply in love with ourselves in the darkness. For God so loved sinners like you and me that he didn't spare his eternally priceless, most valuable son, but he gave him to be a sacrifice in our place for our disregard of him so that we would have the fullness of eternal life. And show me a better love than that. You can't find one. There isn't one. And this isn't a, a one-time only thing. This isn't a, a look to Jesus in faith to rescue me from the venom of sin and the judgment of God and then I move on to something else. No, it's a daily reality. It's a daily love that we get to live in because the reality of it is you're gonna walk out of here. You may not even get out of here, but you're gonna find yourself soon in a place where you feel like God doesn't love you. That this reality of his love that John is talking about is just too great. You don't say it's not real, but you somehow, in what feels like humility, but it's really arrogance, think you're beyond it. 
I'm just too far beyond. And your guilt, and you're going to see it. You're going to see the reality of your sin. And you're going to sense the reality of your guilt. And here's the thing. What we're accustomed to doing is trying to take that guilt and tuck it away somewhere in the darkness. Just hide it over here. Keep the lights off and the music loud. If I can figure out how to redefine that thing and tell myself I'm something other than that, then okay, let's keep working on it. But what happens is when you try to tuck that guilt away, that thing is like miracle grow for shame. You keep that thing in the darkness, all of a sudden without you realizing it, you begin to think you are that thing. You are that sin, and the shame gets heavy. And when we find ourselves trying to find comfort and security and love in the shadows, keeping all that stuff hidden, and now not dealing with the guilt and and being covered in the shame, all that we're left to do on our own is try to convince ourselves we're not as bad as we think we are. Oh, I hear about this love that God is talking about. I'm worthy of that. I'm good enough for that. Friends, I want you to listen to John 3.16 today and tomorrow and the next day. Because that attempt at trying to find comfort in that darkness is what gets in the way of you and I living in the reality of this love. Friends, you and I were not meant to try to convince ourselves that we're somehow worthy of this love. You see your guilt and you sense that reality and you feel like you don't deserve this love that that God has shown us in his son, you're half right. You don't deserve it. But the other half is God loves you in his son. He so intensely in an unfiltered way, loves sinners like you who prefer hiding these things in the darkness that he sent his only son to die in your place. See, we don't get to live in and and taste on a daily basis this massive, indescribable, life-giving love of God by trying to convince ourselves that we're somehow worthy of it, that we're somehow lovable. No, we simply keep our eyes back again onto the one who was lifted up the one who died in our place for our sins and are reminded again of how glorious the one who has loved us really is, who loved us and continued to love us even while we want the darkness. Friends, there isn't a better love. This is real love. For God so loved the world while we were utterly unlovely that he gave his only son, giving him by sacrificing him in our place for our sins so that whoever would believe in him, look to him, believe into him, should not perish, but have eternal life. This is real love. This is the advent of real love. This is the love that we not just remember, but we celebrate even on a morning like this as we respond to God's word together. And so here's how we're going to do it. We're gonna give you a moment to just reflect on God's word and to consider how God by his spirit might be stirring your heart to respond to him. And then for those who have looked upon Jesus, 
who have believed into him for eternal life, for rescue from sin's venom and God's judgment, you're gonna be invited to come forward and take a piece of bread, remembering his body broken in your place and dip it in a cup, remembering his blood spilled for your eternal life, for your redemption, for setting you free from the condemnation of sin, for your forgiveness, for your new record, for giving you his perfect life for your new identity as a child of God, for the process of making you more and more like himself. You're gonna dip that bread in that cup remembering that God gave his only son in your place for you. And then we're gonna sing and we're gonna celebrate and use our mouths to worship and make much of him. And so I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond together as his people. So let me pray for us and we'll, we'll continue. Father, we thank you this morning that you haven't left us in this world to grope around trying to find a, what real love looks like, what real love feels like, where real love can be found. You, you have shown us in technicolor the reality of love. Lord, help us. And for the first time or the first time in a, in a long time, help us to fix our eyes upon your son, given for our joy, for our life, as an expression of the fullness of your love. Or fix our hearts upon him. We ask this for his name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.